Hi there, Rolf here. Thanks for listening to this episode of my course podcast, Markets and Society. I've included a description and additional material where relevant in the episode notes. I hope you enjoy it. Let's turn our attention to the discussion today, which is on the cooler ring. And we're going to be talking today about this example, and then next week we're going to be looking at another very fascinating example, the Huron Society from North America, my part of the world. And I'm using these two examples to introduce us to a concept or to, to the idea of markets operating endogenously versus markets operating exogenously. And so let me briefly refer to what I mean by those two terms. In the case of the Huron, we're going to see an exogenous market. That is to say, we're going to see a group of people who emerge quite literally as a nation, at least if we follow the argument that will be presented, and underpinning the logic of that, let's call it nationality, it's an anachronistic term, but let's use it for now, underpinning the logic of that nationality, I will make the suggestion, is an exogenous market logic that informs why the society takes the shape, takes the form, and even the location that it does. So another way of saying that is, it's a society that emerges that is surrounded by a market, by a system of institutionalized exchange, but within the society, there is no meaningful market exchange. So the market that exists is taking place at the boundaries of the society, hence it is exogenous. It's outside of the market. The example that we're going to look at today, the cooler ring, is an example of an endogenous market logic. So it's a society that makes itself function by virtue of its capacity or ability to institutionalize market exchange, not at the boundary of the society, but within the society. And in fact, interestingly for the Trobriander Islanders we'll be looking at, there is almost no evidence of any meaningful external exchange. In fact, all the exchange that takes place is happening inside of this social system. So it's an example of an endogenous market logic. So it's just to remind us that human beings have used markets in all kinds of different ways, exogenously, endogenously, and in many cases, of course, uh, both. So in looking at the cooler ring, we're going to be looking at an example of what does it mean to incorporate endogenous market function in order to make the social relations of the society, if not perfect, optimized given the conditions that are there. So let's talk a little bit about what we know about, about this particular example. This part of the story is actually, if you think about it, pretty hilarious. Because if you had to imagine in your head the least likely person ever to go live with a bunch of Papua New Guinea natives, it would be this guy. Like, this guy does not look adventure-ready. And yet, despite <laughs> appearances can be deceptive because this person has had a profound impact on the field of ethnography, anthropology, indeed, our whole approach to thinking about societies that look different from the one we, that, that we have, the one that is familiar to us. In brief, Malinowski was a Pole. He was Polish. He was born actually into the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which will matter in a moment. But he was born in Poland. I believe he was born in Krakow. And he got a PhD in physics, I think, from Krakow University. So he had a mathematical background, a mathematical training, good rigorous scientific methods, scientific positivism, all that. Um, and then uh, he decided to go and pursue this new field of anthropology, which he did in London at the London School of Economics. So he then moved to London, and he was pursuing a degree at the LSE, which he was doing just before the beginning of the First World War, when he would have been, what was that, sort of like in his late 20s. 
so as part of his degree, part of doing this early anthropology degree, the way you did anthropology back in those days was you would do a few years of coursework, and then, like a gentleman, you'd put on your finest tie, and you'd go off to some part of the world where you knew you would find what they used to call either natives or sometimes the savage, and you would go off to these places. So Australia was good, Papua New Guinea was fine, Africa was okay. And you'd go sit there you know, in a nice house, and, and I'm not making this up, and you would hire porters or servants to go collect artifacts for you from the bush. They would bring them back, you would observe them, you'd write about them a little bit, you'd describe them, and then after three months with your little collection of, of incunables, you would head back to your home country and then you would file for your, for your degree. That was the way, essentially, it was kind of armchair anthropology. The idea that you would actually go and speak to the people you were studying, <laughs> that was ups, just out of the question, right? Gentlemen do not speak with savages, sort of the mindset. So when Malinowski arrived in, uh, so he decided to go to Australia to do this, right? He went to Australia, he was going to collect some things, follow this route. But he arrived there just as the First World War broke out, which was a problem for him, because if you know your First World War history, on one side of that conflict, we have France and England and Russia. And on the other side of that conflict, we have Germany. And who was Germany's ally? Austria, Austria exactly, the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So Malinowski found himself in Australia, a Commonwealth country, with the passport of an enemy. So he couldn't go back. So he was stuck there. Couldn't, he was essentially stateless for the war. So somebody said to him, well, you know, there's a very interesting group of people who are living off the coast of, of Papua New Guinea called the Trobriand Islanders. Maybe you should go check those guys out. So he thought, well, I'm stuck here for a while. Doesn't look like the war's going to end anytime soon. So indeed he did. He went up through Papua New Guinea and he uh, went over, took a boat and, and, and essentially showed up one day amongst these, amongst these islanders. Imagine you're sitting there as a Trobriand Islander just doing your thing and this very weedy, incredibly white Polish person shows up. It's like, hey, I've come to live with you guys if that's okay. And the amazing thing was, it was okay. They're like, sure, come on in. He couldn't speak the language. He had no clue what the hell was going on. Uh, but he stayed there for four years. And over the course of those four years, he integrated himself into that society. He learned the language, and he lived with them, essentially as one of them. And apparently, by the end of the period, people didn't even pay him any notice, despite his look, his appearance, and all the rest of it. He was just accepted as, as one of them. So he essentially integrated inside the life of the, of the Trobriander. Today, that's not that abnormal. We saw, for example, Richard Lee, who integrated himself into the habits of the Kung people that he was studying. But when Malinowski did it, that was a very unheard of approach for how you should practice ethnography, the idea that you should really embed yourself with the people that you're studying. The opening chapter of this book, Argonauts of the Western Pacific, is still the foundational text of ethnoanthropology or anthroethnography. If you're a first-year graduate student studying either of those disciplines, you would basically start by reading the opening chapter of his work in which he lays out, as a good physicist, the scientific reasons why this is the only way you can actually generate knowledge in this field to get close to the people that you're studying in order to understand what they're doing. The interesting thing is that this approach also mapped onto a whole series of confusing things that he saw when he showed up. So when Malinowski first arrived inside of Trobriander society and had sorted himself out enough to be able to get his bearings, he started observing behaviors that made no sense to him from his sort of Western, Polish-educated, scientific, rational mind. 
Specifically, he saw islanders undertaking dangerous voyages over open ocean in small, what to him looked like flimsy canoes, laden down with large amounts of food, pigs and yams and other vegetables. And they would make this open ocean journey crossing of maybe 10, 20, 30, 40 kilometers to arrive at some island to then engage in a, in a sort of trade with people on that island. And what they were trading was exactly the same thing. So they'd go to this island where there were plenty of pigs and plenty of yams and other vegetables. And they would show up with these things. And I'll ask you, what's the point of that? Because remember, a commodity, in order for it to be a commodity, in order for it to commodity exchange, has to be expressed proportionally to something else. So if I take a whole bunch of yams to your house and you already have a bunch of yams, there's going to be no exchange, unless there's some difference between them. But a yam is a yam is a yam, as the old saying does not go. So in this context, Malinowski is like, why would people risk their lives overloading these canoes to take dangerous voyages to go to these islands to bring things that these people already have in abundance? Makes no sense. And not only that, at the moment when the islanders were undertaking these voyages, there was an enormous amount of social buzz and hubbub and enthusiasm around these particular events. So from his point of view, he simply could not understand what was, what was going on. There were other activities that he saw that made no sense. He saw, for example, large amounts of food being grown and then literally thrown away. Why grow food that you're not going to need? And it wasn't as if it was accidental or idiosyncratic. It seemed as if people were growing food knowing full well ahead of time that they were going to throw it away. Why would they do that? That doesn't seem <laughs> rational at all. He encountered things like an abundance of magic every time the Trobriander seemed to do anything. They had to have some kind of magic that went with it. Some Western perception of the typical sort of superstitious native always needing magic. Well, he saw that in abundance all over the place. Even at the level of their most basic economic activity, there was always this element of magic involved. What explained that? He didn't, uh, he didn't understand. So when he sat down in his house, in the little uh, structure that he had inside of the Trobriander society, he was all these conundrums had been drawn to his attention or brought to his attention. And so he wondered, how can we explain these? How can we explain these behaviors? Now, in a prior tradition, before Malinowski, there's an easy explanation. What explains people taking useless things over long voyages to people who don't need them, or using magic all the time, or growing food to throw it away? What explains that? Pretty simple. The indigenous people are childlike, primitive. They can't make rational decisions. Of course, they're superstitious. They grow more food than they need, and they throw it away because they are profligate, foolish. They believe in magic because they're, they're childlike and susceptible to these kinds of beliefs and so on. So in other words, people were not extending their thinking very far. They were simply uh, leaning into pre-existing prejudices, of which there were plenty, from the 19th century to explain these kinds of behaviors. Malinowski came along, spent four years, four, <laughs> he spent the entirety of the war until he could go back, living with these people, and what he learned was transformational in terms of how we understand these kinds of, quote unquote, primitive societies. Because what he discovered was that what looked to us like irrational, superstitious primitivism was in fact part of a highly complex socioeconomic system that actually allowed this society to cohere. 
What he ended up describing in his, in his book, The Argonauts of the South Pacific, which, if you're interested, it's a very easy-to-read book. It's freely available. You can get it on archive.org or Gutenberg. It's a fun book to read. He discovered something which he called, or which, which they called Kula, which he then turned into what, the, what we call the Kula Ring. Kula is the, the indigenous term in this society for exchange or trade. So what he observed at the heart of this system of seemingly difficult-to-understand behaviors was a system of trade that seemed to glue this society together, an economic system based on exchange that follows a very different logic from the one that we're used to in a disembedded market. What's super interesting is that trade consisted of only two objects, things called a mawali and a sulava, and they're kinds of jewelry. We'll, we'll, we'll see pictures of them in a moment. But the interesting thing is that these Mowali and Sulava were being traded back and forth across this archipelago island complex as commodities, meaning they had both a use value and an exchange value. <coughs> Recall that last time we were discussing Marx, we asked that question. In theory, what's the minimum number of commodities that you need in order to establish commodity exchange? And the answer is two. Here was a society that developed an entire extensive trading network that involved only two commodities. They made other things. They made baskets and they, made, uh, they grew food and, and things like that. But those were not traded as commodities. Those were provided around principles of things like reciprocity and mutualism. But in terms of actual trade that we might see as familiar in a trading context here, just these two, the Mowali and Sulava, as uh, commodities. And as he went and he observed it, he saw that in this context as a, of a commodity exchange, that as you sort of worked out its particulars, that the more you could figure out what the cooler ring was doing, the more it started to bring into focus all the patterns of behavior that he was observing in the society more generally, which is a way of saying that at the heart of this Trobriander social system was this, let's call it, bizarre system of commodity exchange. This is what seemed to make that society work. And the other interesting thing is that when you see a picture of the Mowali and the Sulava, you'll think, that can't be right. There's no way that these objects could possibly be responsible for social cohesion of tens of thousands of people. I'll show you a picture of them, and you'll see what I mean. There they are. These two objects were at the heart of the cultural viability of the Trobriander Islanders, cemented through a very complex system of commodity exchange that had been operating for a very, very long period of time that enabled the Trobrianders to develop forms of social optimization. Yeah? For, for the sake of what was this exchange? Like, why the word genius? That's, what, that's certainly what, what Malinowski thought. What's the point? It seems like you're just trading trinkets. How could something like that be made into a sophisticated system that enables community optimization, community viability. So quick summary, Malinowski trapped in Australia. World War I breaks out. He's got an Austro-Hungarian passport, can't go home. He's stuck there. So he relocates to the Trobriand Island complex, sets up shop, moves into one of the villages, learns the language, and as we saw, is immediately confronted by a set of behaviors that he doesn't understand, seem mysterious. So he commits to trying to figure out what on earth is going on outside of the typical 19th century colonizing framework, which simply says, well, indigenous peoples are childlike, backwards. This is, of course, the kinds of things that they do. Ask a deeper question, does there serve some kind of purpose? 
So let's take a quick look at the society in which he found himself. A good question was asked, how long had this system been operative? The answer was, we don't really know. By the time Malinowski showed up, already the forces of European colonialism were at play in terms of disrupting local lifestyles because on the neighboring island of uh, Papua New Guinea, on the major island, there were already plantations being set up, so traditional lifestyles were already being somewhat disrupted. But certainly it goes back many hundreds of years, if not more than, more than that. So Malinowski, when he saw it, saw it sort of at the very end of its life because already the contact with modernity that the Trobrianders had encountered was already starting to disrupt this system. So we're lucky that he was there when he was there to describe it. The Trobriand Islands are a small cluster of islands on the eastern tip of uh, Papua New Guinea. The main island, Kirawina, is characterized by a large central lagoon. And then there are smaller islands that are located around this main, um, this main island. And the thing that struck Malinowski, that dangerous sea journey that he saw, was actually, as I recall, were people making the dangerous trip from Kirawina over to Kitava Island, which is not on the lagoon side, but open ocean. So this is the dangerous crossing that he, that he saw. The total population of these islands was not that great. Certainly by the time he was there, already starting to suffer from depopulation as people went to find work on the mainland, probably under 10,000, certainly several, several thousand at least, maybe, but probably under 10,000. And people generally were living in small villages. On each of these islands of the Trobriander complex, there would be numerous small villages, 50 to 100 people perhaps collected together. Mm -hmm not far from each other, but each village having its own sort of individual, uh, its individual identity. Now, importantly, inside of the system, and we'll be coming back to these terms again, uh, but inside of the system, it followed what we call a patrilocal matrilineal logic. So let's explain that a little bit. Societies can either typically be patrilocal or matrilocal, and this refers to how people behave at the moment when they come together inside of a family or a marriage or a pairing. So if it's a patrilocal society, what that means is that the woman will move in with the man, with her husband, whereas a matrilocal society will displace people the other way. So we have examples of both in all kinds of different places. It is more common for societies to be patrilocal, although matrilocal, matrilocality is not un unheard of. What is unusual is that typically patrilocality, so the wife relocates into the household of her husband, is typically associated with patrilineality, which is to say that the identity of the family follows the father's line. What's interesting in the Trobriander case is they mix them up. So although it maintains a more sort of familiar patrilocal <laughs> pattern of marriage, the identities of people are themselves matrilineal. So the way you identify yourself is through your mother's line. Your mother's identity becomes, as her child, becomes your identity. So that means the clan that she belongs to, the lineage that she belongs to, and all of that stuff uh, all, comes through the, all comes through the mother. And we'll see that this system of patrilocality and matrilineality combined together creates a very unusual outcome. Additionally, inside of the society, there were systems of institutional hierarchy and rank. Uh, and we can distinguish between hierarchy and rank, hierarchy being, in this case, simply the, uh, an office or a position that confers some kind of authority. And the hierarchy that, that was operative was that typically in every village there would be a sort of local person, a local man, in fact, always, I believe it was gendered, one person inside the village who had more authority than, than others. So, for example, the ability to coordinate activities and, and things like that. So the village system operates according to a hierarchy. And then intersecting that system of hierarchy, we have a system of rank, and that relates not to the status of an office inside of the society, but instead to your identity. 
So each, each Trobriander belonged to one of several clans that were identified as clans typically are across the world totemically. What that means is the clan attaches to a symbol or a sign or an indication. So for example, you might have a clan that's named after an animal or a river or something like this. So we have these totemic clans, and inside of this clan system, there is social differentiation. What that means is that some clans are seen as having more social prestige, more social value than others. So depending on what clan you're in, this tells you more or less where you are in the social pecking order. And what we can then see is that the degree of authority that attaches to the hierarchy depends on the degree of authority that attaches to the clan of the person who's holding that position. So it's not impossible for someone from a relatively low socially ranked clan to attain a position of authority inside of a village, but that authority will not itself be very pronounced. However, when someone of a high social rank attains a position of, of authority inside the village system, at that point then the mode of authority will become correspondingly enhanced. So we can think of it like a wave function. We have an institutional wave, func wave and we have a, this social clan-based wave, and if those two combine we have an amplitude. And so it can, it can increase. And the importance of that will become clear in a moment. The final element that we note, may note is that across this society, there is a tremendous importance placed on magic and social rituals. As Malinowski points out in his text, there's almost nothing that the Trobrianders do that is at not some point accompanied by magic. So when they grow their crops, there's a magic component to the growing season. When they chop down a tree, there are certain things that you have to say, certain magic that has to be summoned to accompany these kinds of activities. So there's a, a world of perpetual magical forces that are accompanying the life of these, uh, Trobriand, uh, of these Trobriand islanders. And I'll state at the outset that the Trobrianders belong more broadly to a Polynesian society that exists across the South Pacific. And it is a general feature, not universal, but it is a general feature of those South Pacific Polynesian and Melanesian societies that they are typically characterized by forms of violence between different groups. So people living on one island, it's not uncommon for them to engage in raiding parties or violent activities towards their neighbors in other islands. Just a, a general feature of Polynesian and Melanesian culture to embed a kind of violence between different groups. However, in the Trobriander society, one of the interesting things is that the Islands that are collected together, we're all living broadly in peaceful relations with each other. Keep that in mind because that's going to be important by the time we get to the end of our discussion. Okay, so let's take a look at, these, at the importance of this matrilineal totemic uh, clan. So if you are born into a Trobriander society, because of the matrilineality, uh, although you might live in a typical family, one woman, one man, because with, with one important exception, it's not a polygamous society, so we have a typical kind of nuclear family, but your identity, meaning your clan, is going to come from your mother. So the social rank that you inherit is going to be determined by the clan rank status that comes from your mother. So let's take a look at what he saw in the, in the local economy. He says, the Trobriander works prompted by motives of highly complex social and traditional nature and towards aims which are certainly not directed towards the satisfaction of present wants. So here we're doing work that's not for the satisfaction of present wants, which sounds very odd to us. So we see that there's a lot of economic activity that says, he says, not directed to the satisfaction of present wants or the direct achievement of utilitarian purposes. So think of what that means. I'm expending my time and energy to do things that don't seem to satisfy an immediate need or want. Why would I then commit to this, right? That's the question. 
In the first place, work is not carried out on the principle of the least effort. On the contrary, much time and energy is spent on wholly unnecessary effort that is unnecessary from a utilitarian point of view. Again, work and effort, instead of being merely a means to an end, are, in a way, an end in themselves. A good garden worker in the Trobriands derives a direct prestige from the amount of labor he can do and the size of garden he can till. The title, and I'm going to miss this word up, Tok Waibagula, which means good or efficient gardener, is bestowed with discrimination and born with pride. So at the very heart of the Trobriander economy, we have this bizarre, seemingly bizarre system of Trobriand farming, the purpose of which is to generate surplus production that then goes to waste, food that you don't need. What is the purpose of growing more food than you need? So it goes outside of a utilitarian logic. And the reason is because in so doing, the person who's growing that food can establish for themselves a reputation as a good farmer and thus earn this title, which you'll note is bestowed with discrimination, meaning not everybody gets this particular title. So to earn this title is an achievement. If you earn this title, what attaches to you a certain amount of prestige in that local village context. And as part of the system, once you had grown your yams, typically on your, on your fields and produced a bountiful crop, what you would do is you would display them publicly inside of a yam hut. So you would build these structures in front of your house, and then you would take your harvest and you would mount, you would put them up so that everybody could see. So you can imagine walking down the street and there's some guy in his yam huts overflowing with yams, what do you think? That guy really knows how to grow yams, right? There's one really good farmer. So the point is by making this, this element visible, right? By making the productive function of labor visible, you're actually then attaching a social value to the output of that labor. And the consequence of that is that at some point, the, the social logic overwhelms the economic logic such that you start growing yams you know you won't need that you know that you can't consume, that you'll simply throw away at the end of the season. But that's because the purpose of growing so much food is not to consume it, it's to gain social prestige in the context of your particular community. So economic activity is being directed towards a social end. And we'll see in a moment why it matters that individual farmers should work hard to produce this kind of effort to gain this form of social prestige, what that can translate into. So that's the first strange thing in this economic system. We're committing labor, but the function of that labor is not the actual output, but the social prestige that attaches to that output. But wait, it gets weirder still. The most important point about this economic system is that all or almost all the fruits of the work of a farmer, and certainly any surplus which he can achieve by extra effort, goes not to the farmer himself, but to his relatives in law. So he's growing all this food, and it's not for him. It may be said that about three quarters of a man's crops go partly as tribute to the chief, partly as his due to his sister's or mother's husband and family. But although he thus derives practically no personal benefit in the utilitarian sense from his harvest, the gardener receives much praise and renown from its size and quality, and that in a direct and circumstantial manner. So think about this. There you are, you're out there every day working hard, growing this abundance of food, more than you can consume, and most of it you then hand over to somebody else. You hand over some of it to your chief as tribute. We might think of it as a kind of tax, but a lot of it goes into the household of your sister, of your relatives-in-law, your sister and her husband, so your brother-in-law, for example, and his, his parents, for instance. So you're now committing all this labor not for you. 
So the, the, whatever utilitarian value there is to it, most of that's being captured by somebody else. So would the sister's husband also give him his work? Or like no. It's a one-way transfer of surplus into the household of the sister. What explains this? Well, we can explain the logic of this curious economic system with reference specifically to the patrilocal matrilineality that underpins this society. So if we imagine a group of two people who get together inside of our Trobriander society, it's patrilocal, so the wife is moving in with the husband, but it's matrilineal. So the identity of the children that they may produce belongs to the mother's line. If you're therefore the father in this context, your children or the importance of your, of your children in your immediate family are going to be less important than who? What other children are going to be more important to you? Exactly, right? Because your identity is passed along through the mother's line. You cannot pass your identity on through your own children. Who can pass your identity along? Your sister. Your sister's children will carry that identity forward to her children. So in terms of your, say, what the, the stake that you have in this system of perpetuating identity, what's going on in your own family is going to be secondary to what's going on in your sister's family. And therefore, it makes sense, insofar as you're motivated to, to think about the importance of your own lineage, it makes sense to dedicate or devote surplus resources to the raising of her children and not your own. A very strange outcome. So matrilineality means essentially, you can think of it this way, it means that what sounds to us as very obvious, namely, when two people get together for the purposes of reproduction, what we call a family, so when a family gets together, we think of the economic function and the social function as essentially the same. You bring resources into the family, you raise your kids as best you can, you hope they have the best outcomes and so on. In this society, the reproductive logic and the, and the economic logic are split. So the reproductive logic remains nuclearized, but the economic logic now happens over this interface between an individual and his in-laws because the father is primarily motivated in the well-being of his sister's children. Therefore, it makes sense that he's going to move resources into her household. An economy like this, where resources are being moved across, outside of the marriage form, across a pattern into the in-laws, if we imagine just the, the logic of that economic system, what's it going to look like at the level of the village? How does an economy like that work? Who's, who's bringing food into this family? Her brother, right? So if we think about what that looks like, what, what's the logic of the system? Broadly, it has to therefore be a circular economy because everybody has to be interlocked with each other through this system. Since no individual family is self-sufficient, you're always reliant on this external relation to bring in resources. It locks you into a logic of circularity inside of the economy with individuals moving resources into families that are not theirs. The interesting thing is, the economic, so that the rep, we have a reproductive logic and we have an economic logic, we also have a kind of emotional logic. Because the interesting thing that Malinowski observed was that the father of his, the, 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 the pair where you have a, a husband and wife with, say, two children, that the relationship between the father and his own children inside of the reproductive pair is much more avuncular, meaning a, like an uncle. Whereas the relationship of that person, that father, to his sister's children was much more paternal. So your paternal relationship is not actually with your own children, but actually with the children of your sister, because they're the ones who are carrying your name down 
across the, the lineage, right? So it even dislocates the whole idea of paternal emotional response. So the father will typically be very lax and spoil his kids a lot and so on, and it will be up to his brother-in-law to come into the house and crack heads and impose, uh, impose the rules and so on. Okay, let's go to the system of hierarchy. So this is at the level of the patrilocal matrilineal household economy that's taking place at the village level. Let's then take a look at the system of hierarchy that operates inside of these villages. So as soon as you get any number of people around, even in egalitarian structures, you're going to need to have somebody who has, who, who's granted some kind, of, uh, some kind of authority, even if it doesn't mean that they can boss you around or tell you what to do. It's just inefficient not to have some mechanism to coordinate cooperative effort. We saw even in the example of our Inuit communities. Recall that in our Inuit example, in the winter, they moved into these egalitarian communal structures. Even there, even as patriarchy disappeared, there was still somebody who could be designated to help resolve disputes and the like. So it's just a universal feature, it seems, of human societies that there will inevitably be someone who can be looked to with, to have this kind of authority, some sort of managerial role. It doesn't mean they necessarily have a lot of power, but they have a certain status. Uh, and it's typically given to men, and typically given to men who either have accomplishments or are old or things like this. So we have the same system here, an oper operative inside of Trobriander society, a political hierarchy, nominal positions of authority, and these we can call headmen. As we've seen, if someone can rise to the position of a headman and also benefit from higher social rank, at that point we have that, that amplitude effect taking place, at which point we can then create the possibility of a higher level of authority. So it's not just a, a sense of hierarchy, but actual power. Somebody who has the ability to command, to tell other people what to do. And this happens inside of Trobriander society. So across the islands, we have individual headmen in villages, but we also have regional chiefs, people who are, by virtue of their rank and their status, have more authority than others. And so the system of tribute, recall that at the village level, you owe the, the individual farmer owes tribute to the, the local headman and, as well as to his in-law's family. And that system of tribute then scales up as we go across this society. So the, the chief is so designated as somebody who's rising through this village system, somebody of high rank, who then attracts uh, a greater concentration of tribute. And here we can see another feature of that patrilocal, matrilineal logic taking place, which is how does the chief rise to this position of considerable authority? Well, once you achieve a certain status, an additional institution is introduced to allow for uh, an expanded concept of the household, and that is polygamy. So certain people of certain status are allowed more than one uh, wife. So at the village level, typically, it will be monogamy. But once you get to the, the level of these chiefs, they're allowed polygamy. They can have multiple wives. Based on the system we've seen so far, the resources are coming into your household based on what is owed to your children from your brother-in-law. So the more wives you have, the more people who are then bringing in resources into your family. So it creates an interlocking system of tribute that takes advantage of this patrilocal matrilineal system. Is that clear? So I'm a chief. I have one wife. Now, and let's say I, I marry, the, say, the sister of a headman of some village, someone who's got a lot of resources coming in. Now he owes a lot of his household goods to me. If I can marry two women who are like that, I can now double it. If I can marry three, etc. So in this way, through polygamy, the chief can attract large concentrations of, of resources coming into his coming into his household. 
So we can see it's a centralizing mechanism for resource concentration. So we see that wealth accumulation is achieved by this interlocking system of descending hierarchies built out of the patrilocal matrilineal system. But the point of getting all these resources in your household is not to hoard them and buy a big yacht. Once you have them, what do you need to do? You need to redistribute them. And so what we find is that under the system of these chiefs, there's a redistributive mechanism that essentially operates as we might call a chief economy or a microeconomy supported by the aggregation of resources that are distributed out by the chiefs to other people then. But when they come back out, they come out attached to the prestige of the particular chief. And Malinowski draws our attention to this interesting fact. The chief's position can be grasped only through the realization of the high importance of wealth and of the necessity of paying for everything, even for services which are due to him. So the, the position of the chief is one of always be moving resources out of his household to other people, and thereby creating systems of interlocking, we might call it dependency, but really I think the word we should use is patronage. So I make canoes, every time I chop down a tree, the chief pays me in goods, even though it's my job to chop down trees because I'm part of this clan and so on. Nonetheless, I'm part of this microeconomic, I'm part of this microeconomic system. So that we can see here clearly a kind of Polanyi idea where the whole economic logic is made subordinate to the social relation with a clear operating uh, redistributive mechanism that allows for uh, goods, to be, goods to be allocated. And I should note that the allocation of goods here is not an economic logic, it's a social logic. Very quickly, I wanted to bring up what I'm going to call the canoe economy. This is not in the chapter that I've asked you to read, but it's very interesting because it shows us uh, one of the interesting things that we see here. So we have these surplus resources and we have these redistributive mechanisms. One of the questions that exists inside of an institution in order for it to be an institution, is that we're able to explain why things look the way they do. If you can't explain why things look the way they do, it's not an institution. An institution definitionally means rules. So one of the things that we see is in the context of this redistributive mechanism is that the chiefs are paying out food for different types of labor, and that labor is differentiated, as we might think of as the social division of labor or labor specialization. But if you think about it, in an economy like this, most of the labor inputs are going to be relatively straightforward. Let's suppose that to intone magic, you have to sing a song. To chop down a tree, you have to use an ax, right? To carve out a tree, you have to use an adze or something like this. These do not require advanced special skill sets. How do you create division of labor if there is no real basis for creating a division of labor? And so what you find is that these social divisions, things like clan identity, become part of it such that based on the matrilineal identities that you have, this then tells you more or less the kinds of things that you can and importantly cannot do. Because my mother is this clan, I'm the kind of person who can perform magic. If you don't happen to have that last name, you're not a magic performer. Because my mother has this last name, therefore I'm the kind of person who can dig out a canoe or carve a piece of wood. So in other words, it attaches specific labor tasks based on social identity, and that creates then a rationale for the distribution of goods based on this kind of division of labor. The person who fells the tree gets something, the person who intones the magic gets something else. It creates rationality, transparency, order, logic, reason even though the underlying basis for it is itself built around a kind of, let's call it a social fiction, that different clans actually correspond to different, to different abilities. At the very center of this entire system was this mechanism of trade, commodity trade, between these two elements, the Sulava and the Mawali. One is a bracelet that you put around your arm, and the other is a necklace that you hang around your neck. They're made out of local, local materials. The bracelets are made out of shell, and the necklaces are string with little beads and, and, and conches and conch shells and stuff attached to them. 
The interesting thing is that the system of Kula is an overlapping system of trade just involving those two goods, an economy of only two commodities. And to make it work, the fundamental principle in forming the trade is the geographical propinquity of each person in the trade relative to the other. What do I mean by that? Propinquity means nearness. Another way of saying that is if I'm here and you're here, how do we know who's trading what to whom? And so the trade follows one hard rule that you cannot break, which is that depending on whether you live in one direction or another direction from me, I know ahead of time what it is that I'm trading with you. The Sulava always trade in a clockwise direction, and the Muali always trade in a counterclockwise direction. And if you think about it, that solves a lot of problems, because in a world of just two commodities, how do we know which commodity is being traded with which based on, on what we have? No, based on where we live. So this creates the underlying logic and allows the system to operate effectively at all times. No matter where you are, you're always going to be in a clockwise or counterclockwise relationship with your neighbor. Any man can kula. Any man can enter into a kula relationship with any other man inside of this society. But once you're in kula with somebody, it's a lifetime relationship. To kula once is to kula forever. So you do not lightly enter into a kula relationship with somebody. You're going to have to be somebody worth entering into a kula relationship with. So let's suppose that we have three places where there's a potential for a kula ring, three neighboring villages. Typically, kula takes place outside of your immediate village context. You're trading with people outside of your immediate community. So I go to some neighboring village, and I've gotten my hands on one of these mawali, and we'll come to exactly how that might have looked like. Who's the person I'm going to want to trade with? Like, I go to some neighboring village, I have my Mawali, I know that I'm getting a Sulava back if I can enter it, if I can find someone to Kula with me. Who might be a good candidate for entering into a Kula trade? Someone with a lot of Sulava. Well, remember, it's a commodity exchange. One Mawali is always one Sulava. But that might be someone with lots of, on the other hand, would someone with lots of Sulava be willing to trade with me with my one Mizi Mawali? Probably not. What kind of person might I be looking for? High status people, yeah. Somebody who's got good reputation. It's a lifetime relationship. Who are you going to want as your partner on the other side of that trade? Someone with good reputation. Someone with... A really high standard. Got high standards. Someone with proven abilities. You want to say something? They can't be more than one like, trading partner. Yes, you can have, you're going to be in multiple Kula. Isn't it that if you're like high status... You get like plenty of people that want to trade with you. Yes, that's true. Which will, as you can see, amplify your status, right? Yeah. So the cooler ring is also indeed is, is a status amplification mechanism. But at my most basic level, like I'm wandering into a village, I'm looking around, I'm saying, who can I cooler with? I'm going to be looking for the person who the inside of the village has a good reputation. Do villages have ways of establishing good reputation inside of them that we've seen? Yeah. Indeed, right? So when I'm sitting there making my yams highly visible... One of the things I'm doing is I'm establishing a presence, a prestige inside of the village that has currency not only inside the village, but potentially outside the village as well, because now I'm the kind of person that you might want to cool it with. The more I get awarded that honorific title of being a good or efficient farmer, the higher my prestige will be, the greater my social standing, the greater my social value, the more likely I am then to be able to enter into this kind of trade. And once I'm in Kula with somebody... It means that now every year, or every, we'll come to that in a moment, but every, every period of time, I'm going to be exchanging, based on the logic of our geographical location, necklaces and bracelets, necklaces and bracelets. But beyond that, 
now I have a relationship with somebody else in a neighboring village. So maybe that person might have children who are good, suitable spouses for my children, for instance, right? So it starts to create the basis for things like family connections. We might use this as a way of expanding our network. Or, as importantly, when one day, through no fault of my own, a huge band of hungry pigs comes in and destroys my house completely, needs up all my yams, and I've got none left, and my brother-in-law is getting angry at me, who can I call upon to help me out? My Kula guy. So I'm going to be able to, hold, to get my Kula guy and say, could you bring me some emergency yams? And, of course, he has the same expectation of me, and so it builds in a system of reciprocity and mutualism inside of the trade. If we bring in a third person inside of our Kula, it's the same logic. Again, the Sulava are always going this way, so I bring a Sulava, and I'm getting back a Mawali. So you always have the sense of logic of these things in a constant flow, one clockwise, one counterclockwise, bringing in different numbers of people. And you can have them overlapping. So you might have two people involved in one trade inside of one system, two of them involved in another system. So you can Kula with lots of different people if you want, if you can. I shouldn't say if you want, if you can. Because it's not that easy to Kula. Because it's a lifetime relationship. To find someone to Kula with you requires a lot of, or embeds a lot of obligation. You have to be someone worth Kulaing with. And it's not necessarily that easy to establish yourself as someone who is worth uh, exchanging with. And so that means it's important that societies develop these mechanisms so that your prestige, your trustworthiness, can be made visible, known, so that you can then be part of this exchange. Yeah? Is it always a new relationship with any time, like trying to it is often an unequal relationship. In fact, your goal would be to try to Kula with someone who's of a higher status than yourself. Because then you can say, I am in Kula with this important, important person, right? Because he has more power than you than you Absolutely. So the question would be, would that person be willing to Kula with you? But yes, you would try necessarily to have a, a, an unequal, unequal status of people in a Kula definitely is part of the operative system. Here's the interesting question, though. What do you actually own inside of a Kula exchange? Because the curious feature of this system is that when I send my, my Sulava on and I get a Mawali back, after a certain period of time, maybe six months, maybe a year, maybe a year and a half, but not much more than that, I'm expected then to take that and move it back into the ring, to recirculate it back amongst my Kula partners, which is, which is odd, right? I'm exchanging something for something else, and then after a certain period of time, I'm expected to put it back into the cycle of trade. So inside of the cooler ring, what do you think you actually own? You may always have something, but you're always expected to move it on. It's never going to remain in your possession permanently. If you think about it, since, you, since these Mawali are constantly circulating through, there's no material ownership of the good. It's a non-material ownership. Yeah, exactly. And the, well, not the possibility, the exchange with other people. And what do they call that exchange? Kula. You own Kula, right? It's a very odd way of thinking about it. There are property rights that exist inside of this system, but the property rights are not expressed through the material form of the property. Instead, they're expressed through the exchange itself because the actual good, in most ways, is secondary to what that principle of exchange is bringing. So in this way, the Mawali or the Sulava are actually a totem for the instance of exchange itself. So what you would do with these things, if I happen to have a Sulava and, I'm, and somebody sees that I'm wearing, or say my wife is wearing one of these nice bracelets, and they look at me and they see this, they say, this guy is in Kula. And they don't think, oh, he has a very nice bracelet. 
what they're really thinking is, this guy's part of Cool Exchange. And to be part of Cool Exchange necessarily says something about your standing, your prestige, who you are as a person. Would they create their own cool? How do you get your first? That is a very good, very, very good question. Because if anybody can just make uh, Malawi and Sulava, pretty soon your system breaks down. Interestingly, all of the all of the artifacts in this commodity trade are introduced from the outside. So there's actually an outgroup uh, community that makes these things, introduces them into trade. But it's actually more complicated than that too, because. Here we can see this is the use value of the, of the sulava. So the sulava are the necklaces. So you can see that the use value is as a physical adornment. You wear them around. You make them visible. They're, not, they're like a piece of, of jewelry. And then the exchange value is for these muwali in return. So use value is make them displayed. And then the exchange value is one for the, one for the other. And so the use value might be one of two. You might have uh, people wearing them, like in this case example. Or the other possibility is the chief or whoever's in the cool might display them in front of their house. You might just put them on like public display. And that way when people walk by, they see your muwali, they see your sulava, and they know, okay, this guy's in kula. So that the actual object that's in your possession at any given moment in time is not actually what you own. It's a proxy for your real ownership, which is to be part of kula itself. So you can see inside of this system, insofar as being part of kula is important, therefore it incentivizes people to earn for themselves the necessary prestige that they can be so honored in this way. And it's not simply for the grandeur or the glory of prestige in and of itself, but since we're in a part of the world where we have frequent storms and other kinds of disruptions to the environment, it means that any time there's some kind of problems, your crops get flooded or something like this, if you're part of Kula Ring, or if you know someone who's part of Kula Ring, at that point you can draw upon a much larger community than only the, say, 50 people or 100 people who live in your village. And the further out you can create these rings of mutual support, the more protected you're going to be. If a storm goes through and everybody's wiped out in your village, they probably wiped out in the neighboring village too. But maybe 60 or 80 kilometers to the south, there's a village that was spared. So you have an incentive to try and build out more and more expanded or ex and expansive networks inside of this system and it works as a function of the ways in which prestige can be earned locally and then traded or exchanged across a more expansive network. Might happen step by step, but the more you can do it, the better off you are in terms of community optimization. Yeah. How would you get, like, would you just go to other islands and ask them to join you? What's the mechanism of Kula, exactly? So, since we've seen that the Kula ring is a relationship for life, and there's also the possibility that if I'm in Kula with you, for example, our children are much more likely to be in Kula with each other, right? Because the prestige of one generation, not necessarily, but can then pass on to the next generation. So the question is, how do you get into this racket? So you can see the first thing is, it's going to incentivize at the very local level a lot of hard work because the payout for that hard work is to end up inside of this, inside of this ring. As being part of Kula attaches prestige, you can translate local prestige into greater prestige, and eventually it's going to help you do things like become a chief, if that's, your, if that's your ambition. So the first step is, of course, work hard. And that explains what Malinowski observed when he was looking at the local economy. Why are these guys working such long hours, working so hard, outside of what we would think of as a, a supply-demand-wants-needs paradigm? Well, because the, the results of that labor are actually being expressed in different ways. But that's not all that it is because it intersects them with the hierarchies that we see inside of this, inside of the system. Yeah? But did they end up trading these necks within the village, like the locals? Not typically within a village, but between villages, yes. 
You might have local cooler trade and you'll have longer distance cooler trade, which I'm coming to. The other interesting feature, when I get one of these trinkets, basically, right, pieces of jewelry into my possession, remember, I get to keep it for a year, maybe a year and a half. Before I trade it on, I am expected to add something to my Mawali or my Sulava. I might put a little bit of string, add an extra shell, maybe put a few more beads, right, something like this. But I am expected that the good that I move back into Kula is slightly amplified compared to the good that I got that I got in. You were asking the question how long this has been going on. We can actually do a bit of archaeology on the trade based on the complexity of the items that are found in that trade because the longer an item is in this trade, the more comprehensive, the more complex and elaborate it becomes. So if we're like you and me are just two villagers, you know, we're going to be trading here's a shell with a bead attached to it. But if we are in the Kula trade for a long time, eventually they're going to start looking much more elaborate. Now think about this. What's the value of that? I'm some local village guy. I've been farming yams my whole life, working hard, etc. And because I've been successfully in Kula, now after, say, what, 30, 40, 50 cycles of our Kula, and now our primitive basic necklace or armlets look like this. If I end up with something that looks like this in my possession, what do you think I can go do with that? I can now take this high prestige good, I can approach a chief, even though I'm a nobody, and say, hey, would you cool it with me? And the guy will look at it and he'll think, yeah, this is pretty good, I like the craftsmanship and so on, because what is the good carrying with it? Remember, every time I get it, I add to it, its own history. It's literally saying something about who I am in the way that the good looks. So when the chief sees something that looks like this, even though I may just be some relatively low farmer, what does he know about me? This guy, reliable. Look at this, must have been trading 50 years or maybe his family, 100 years, whatever it might be. Another way of saying that is the good reflects its own social relations. The social relations, the labor that goes into the good is made visible in the good. And the value of the good is defined by its social relations. I'll repeat. If I give you a, an armlet that looks like this, it's been in the trade for how long? Maybe a year, maybe two, maybe five. Not a long time. Small modifications as it's going round and round. If eventually it becomes like this, we know that it's been in the trade 30, 40, 50 years, 100 years. What does it say about the person who has it, who's trading it? It says that the history of this item is actually a history of them. It's their history. It's a personal history. Human labor made visible in the commodity. So the exchange value reflects the human labor, the human, the social relations that are put into it. And those social relations can then be translated into a dynamic social mobility inside of the society. So I'm incentivized to behave well, I'm incentivized to work hard, right? Because ultimately in the context of the social dynamics of this society, I can get real rewards as a result. And these, these commodities then end up embedding or signaling through their look, the nature of the social relations that's behind that effort. When you typically see this discussed, you'll see that Kula broadly is discussed at the level of, of powerful men in Kula with each other. We'll come to that as the last part of our discussion. But it's important to note that Kula operates at this, what we might call micro level. Smaller people in the sense of economic status, trading with each other, because prestige is in this case very organic. It's literally coming out of the ground in terms of how many vegetables you grow and how you display them and so on. And then it can be turned into these more and more elaborate things. And the process of turning it into something else is translating the physical elaboration of the good 
into social status because the social relations are maintained in the trade of the commodity. Okay, so let's go to the thing that, it, that confused uh, Malinowski when he first saw it. Remember, he saw all these guys getting into canoes, loading it full of pigs and yams and, uh, and stuff like that, dangerously overloaded with all these things and then taking these dangerous voyages. What they were doing was they are going to neighboring islands to have a feast with a, with a chief from another island. So it was actually a, a fleet of canoes controlled by a local important chief on one island going off to have dinner with a chief from another island. And so you don't show up to dinner empty-handed. You, lay, you put on your canoe all this stuff. Except because this guy's an important chief up here, he already has all that shit, doesn't need yours. So why are you doing it? Why are you loading up your canoe? What you're doing is you're announcing, look, I'm an important person in my island. Here's all the stuff I have. The more you can bring with you, the clearer it, is, it becomes that you actually matter, that you're important. So if you can put, say, 10 kilos of yams on your canoe, that's great. But if you can somehow find a way to put 50 kilos, even though the canoe is now dangerously close to the waterline, you're like, fuck it, we're doing it. And so the next thing you know, you've got these like crazy canoes loaded full, full of this stuff, and they show up, and the chief doesn't need this stuff, but what does he see? He sees somebody who's capable of transporting large quantities of resources from one island to another, which already tells him, hmm, somebody worth, somebody worth maybe dealing with. They'll have a chat. And at some point, not typically when they feast, but at some point a little bit later, they'll sit down and they'll have a discussion. Should we kula with each other? Now, you can imagine when two important people from, say, neighboring islands, or not necessarily neighboring, get into kula with each other, what's happening in the system of exchange? The local chief, naturally, is involved in multiple systems of exchange with the people who already live on his island. So he's already a center point for this system of exchange. So if we're linking this chief with this chief, what are we actually doing? We're bringing two economies together. We're linking them by virtue of these useless trinkets, but that's not the actual thing you own. What do you own? You own being in the trade. So when a typhoon sweeps over your island, you can now ask this guy up here if you can cool it with him to help you out, to bring supplies. Or if some raiders arrive from some distant lands and threaten your people, now you can, for the purposes of mutual defense, Combine forces together and protect your, your communities. So think about it. When these two chiefs discuss whether they should trade with each other, what is it that they're going to want to present to each other to demonstrate that it's worth being in Kula, one with the other? They're not going to want simple bracelets, are they? What kind of a bracelet are they going to want? What kind of a necklace are they going to want? The most elaborate possible that they can have. The more elaborate, the better, because then it indicates that you are a worthy Kula partner at this level of exchange. And so the way in which we see social prestige attaching at the, at the micro level then gets replicated at the macro level and helps bring these, bring these people together linked through a system of reciprocity. So what we can conclude is that, the let's use that term again, the cultural viability of Trobriander Islanders is, if not made possible, then certainly enhanced by the presence of a very specific commodity exchange system in which there are only two commodities because it's not about the commodity, so why would you have more than two? You only need two to link people together. Those commodities are exchanged in such a way that the social relations that the commodity represents, not only are they not lost, but there's a system to make them more and more visible. The longer a commodity has been inside of the system of trade, the more value it has, the more human labor has been committed to it. And it's not just the labor that attaches to, to sewing a little, a little piece of, of shell. 
the labor that it's reflecting is the labor that goes into having the prestige to be part of Kula in the first place. So it's making the social relations visible. Therefore, when you come time to create reciprocal, mutual relationships with other people and you present them a necklace or an armband, you're not seeing a necklace or an armband. What are you seeing? Another human being. Somebody behind that good. The good is telling you something about the person. And so the commodity exchange reflects then effort and prestige attaching to that effort that exists inside of this exists inside of this system. And to your question, what was it for? Well, let's go back to my initial a point I made at the beginning. It is not uncommon for neighbors to fight with one another, for raiding parties and all this kind of stuff. But in the Trobriand Island complex, it is a very peaceful society. There are very, very few incidents where uh, there are attacks of one group against another. Malinowski stresses how exceedingly rare that is. What is it that helps to attenuate the potential for violence inside of a society? What do we say today? What tends to make good neighbors? Once you start trading with people, now you have a motivation to maintain peaceful relationships with them. So one of the underlying motivations for perpetuating the Kula system is it is a way of maintaining peace. It is better for a society if you're not constantly being attacked by your neighbor, but instead your neighbor is your friend. Well, you might go as far as to say there is a kind of political science that exists out of this trade which helps to forge and maintain alliances that otherwise would not be possible without this system of commodity, without this system of commodity exchange. Let me come to my final point and then I'll let you go. Remember, Marx tells us that a commodity is fetishized because we imbue it with a property that it does not have. We look at a computer or a shoe and we think it has a value that we express in money. But money is imaginary, it's fictitious. The value we're not seeing is the actual human labor because human labor disappears inside of a system of commodity exchange. Hence, in Marx's view, the commodity, modern commodities are fetishized. They have properties that are not actually intrinsic to themselves. By contrast, this is a non-fetishized commodity. The value of the commodity is made visible in the commodity itself. The properties that the commodity demonstrates or, or portrays is visible to the person who's exchanging it or getting it. The nature of trade is only made possible by the social relations that the commodity itself demonstrates. Think how mind-blowing this is. Some guy in the 19th century shows up to the Trobriander Islanders and sees a bunch of natives taking voyages in shitty canoes to trade things like this, and what does he think? Primitive, backward, superstitious brown people, they need some extra doses of colonialism to help them understand how to live good lives. Malinowski goes and lives with them four years, learns a language, what does he discover? This seemingly primitive, superstitious, backward, magic-ridden trade is in fact what? Highly complex, anchoring a tire system, allowing it to persist over many hundreds of years in peace and prosperity in which neighbor looks out for neighbor because they have enabled a system of friendly relations built out of not fetishized commodities, non-fetishized commodities. They invented commodities for the purpose of doing what? Maximizing social outcomes. It is a great example of a commodity market that is embedded inside of the social function. And so it's exactly the reverse of what we might think we're seeing if we get into the logic of the actual system itself. Okay, I'll stop there. When we come back next time, we'll look at exogenous markets and the case of the Huron.